There's initial fear. You get through it. You learn from it. It's important to, in my case, I documented why it happened, at least why I thought it happened. And then I just work on continually improving over time while still doing that stuff. Best ever listeners, where are you going to be on February 22nd and 23rd? I am visualizing that you're going to be in Denver, Colorado, because that's where the best ever conference is. And that's when it is February 22nd, 23rd. Go to besteverconference.com and even put in take five. So you get 5% off your ticket. So that is T-A-K-E and the number five whenever you purchase your ticket. And buy now because ticket prices go up weekly. So go to besteverconference.com. You can read all about the conference, the agenda, the speakers. We've got an incredible speaker list focused on commercial real estate. So that includes five plus units if you're in multifamily. And you're going to get a lot of value from this conference. Go to besteverconference.com. It's the third time we've done it. It improves every year and we have raving reviews. I'm not just saying it. Ask people who have attended every year. Besteverconference.com. Enter take five, T-A-K-E five when you purchase your ticket and get an extra 5% off. Ticket price is going up weekly, so get it today. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. We don't like that fluffy stuff. We're straight to the point. I hope you get actionable information so you can do better or take it to another level in your real estate endeavors. We got follow along Friday today. Theo Hicks is with us. Today, we are going to be answering multiple questions from listeners. And we got some updates too. And again, it's updates about what we're doing, but most importantly, observations we've had from what we're doing so that we can help you apply these observations to what you're doing. This is all about you, listeners. This is all about helping you out. So how do we want to kick it off? So let's just jump right into the listener question. So this was a series of questions submitted by Stephen. And there are questions surrounding how to structure the uh, syndication deals with your passive investors. So I'm going to just kind of read through each of his questions and we will stop and answer each one as we go by. So his message was, I was curious about syndication deal structure. I'm curious what types of deal structures are typical as far as preferred return versus equity split. So he gave an example and I'll stop after this next sentence. For instance, if you offer a 6% preferred return, what kind of equity split is reasonable? How does that split change if you move to an 8% preferred return? I would say there's no concrete answer to this, and I'm all about direct answers when direct answers are able to be given because I, I don't like ambiguity when someone asks a question. When I ask a question, I don't like it if after they respond to the question, I still don't know the answer. <laughs> Otherwise, what's the whole point of why we went to back and forth? That being said, there's no one concrete way you can structure deals. I can tell you we structure our deals with an 8% preferred return and a 70-30 split. And we might have a performance hurdle. We usually have a performance hurdle now. Once a certain internal rate of return is achieved by the limited partner, then every dollar of profit after that is split 50-50. When we started out, we did not have that hurdle. Now we do based on we've got a longer track record, more of a performance history. So now we have that performance hurdle. So 
we do 70-30 deals with an 8% preferred return. The thought process, in my opinion, to take on this is you got a couple things to balance. One is the deal itself and what makes the most sense for the deal. And then two is being consistent with your investors so that they know what to expect from your deals. So we choose to only do deals where it makes sense to do a 70-30 split and an 8% preferred return. I have seen others who do deals that are 80-22, limited partners, 20% to general partners, and even 85-15 limited to general, and even 90-10 limited to general. On the surface, that is more favorable to the limited partners. But I would argue there are two considerations to keep in mind when the deal is heavily weighted towards the limited partners in terms of ownership. One consideration is if the projected returns, if that structure, the 90-10 or the 85-15 or even the 80-20, needs to be in place in order for the projected returns for the limited partners to look desirable, then that's a thinner deal. I'm not saying that's always the case for that type of structure. It could be very well just a very favorable structure to the limited partner. But in order to achieve a desired return to the limited partners, the general partner needs to structure it so that the limited partners get more ownership. Then that leads me to believe that there's less wiggle room in those assumptions. Therefore, even though the limited partners get more of the share of the profits, in total, it's a thinner deal. Therefore, the profit margins aren't projected to be as great as Mm -hmm. if it was a 70-30 deal or even a 50-50 deal. So that's one consideration. The second consideration is when it's an 80-20 deal or a 85-15 or a 90-10, well, when something challenging takes place in that deal, If I'm a limited partner, which I am a limited partner on deals as well, including my own, I invest at least $100,000 in every one of our deals now. If I'm a limited partner on the deal, well, I want the general partners to have significant ownership in the deal so that they care about the results. So I want them to have not only their money in the deal, which they definitely should regardless of the structure, but I want them to have significant upside for performing and hitting the projections and even exceeding the projections that were outlined whenever I decided to invest in the deal. So there's considerations to look at both. And this, I believe, is helpful for both limited partners, passive investors, as you're looking at opportunities, but in also answering your question. Additionally, I have interviewed people who have a structure where they bring on basically just debt investors and the difference between debt investor and equity investor. Debt investor, you're capped out at a certain percent. Equity investor, you enjoy the upside. Our investors are equity investors, but we also have the preferred return. So it's a quasi debt investment because they are first in line to receive a certain percent on their investment. It's no guarantee of a return, but they're in line to receive a certain percent. In our case, it's 8% because we do 8% preferred return. But I've interviewed some people who do a 6% preferred return and then up to an additional 6% on their money. So they're capped out at 12% and the general partner receives the rest whenever you sell. Additionally, a major consideration as a general partner when you're structuring deals is when you refinance the deal, 
are you going to keep your investors in the deal or are you going to, based on the amount you return on the refinance, decrease their ownership proportionate to whatever you returned and therefore you're gaining more ownership in the deal and they're decreasing their ownership level because they have less money in the deal. To date, all of Ashcroft deals, my company with Frank, we do not decrease the ownership of our investors whenever we do a refinance or we do a supplemental loan. They maintain the same ownership level. So it's very desirable for the limited partners based on how we're structuring these deals, at least how we structure our deals, because they're able to get proceeds from a refi or a supplemental loan and they maintain the same ownership level. They're not getting purchased out of the deal. And that's not the most lucrative way for me as a general partner to structure the deal, but that's how we choose to structure it because I believe that as our investors do well on the deals, then we'll grow organically through word of mouth, which is one of the top three ways that we get new investors coming in. Word of mouth, bigger pockets in this podcast. So those are some considerations. One last consideration, and then Theo, I'm sure you have some thoughts. One last consideration is if you're doing a riskier deal, and by riskier, it could be it's a distressed deal or it's in a D area, or there's a lot of CapEx that needs to be put into the deal, or you're doing some sort of development for sure would qualify as a riskier deal. If you're doing that, what I've seen developers do is have a higher preferred return in their deal. So instead of our 8% that we offer, I've seen developers offer up to 12% preferred return. And on the surface, when I first got started, because I saw this before I had even done one deal, I was thinking, how the heck are they able to pay 12% whenever they're developing something? They don't even have something that cash flows. Well, the answer is they're not paying 12% during the development or the lease up. They're paying 12% once the property is leased up and stabilized. So that 12% a year on the preferred return, that's simply accruing until a later date. So it's rewarding the investors, the limited partners for participating in the first couple years during the development and the lease up stage because they didn't get a return on their money. But then during the stabilization part, then that 12% has accrued and now they're getting a chunk of profits as a result of it, assuming everything's gone according to plan. Yeah, that was all really good information. Those two considerations, as you mentioned about the profit split and saying how you know, if you're looking at a deal and you plug in your typical profit split, at your 8% preferred return, you plug in 70-30 and let's say the IRR is 12% to the limited partner. So well, that's not enough. So 75-25, most not enough, 80-20. Then finally you get to 90-10, it makes sense. Like, all right, I got the perfect deal. But as you mentioned, there's going to be obviously there's profit margins because the only thing that you're really changing is that structure. So the actual cash flow that's coming in is really never going to change. And at the same time, some people might think, well, I'm giving them a larger percent of this deal. So they're more likely to invest. Whereas some investors might be thinking the exact opposite where it's, well, they don't really have as much skin in the game. If it doesn't perform very well, they're only missing out on 10% of the profits as opposed to 30% of the profit. So I just never thought about it in the other direction. I always thought that that would be a positive. Um, and I know syndicator will do similar things with some of the other ways they get paid. Like for example, they either won't take an acquisition fee on their first deal or they'll just like take half, like 1% as opposed to 
And on one hand, it can sound like it makes sense because you're not taking as much money, but then on the other hand, not having as much skin in the game as well. And the second thing I wanted to mention, because Stephen did ask a question about the refinance, which you essentially answered. He wanted to know, does Ashcroft Capital keep investors in the deal after refinancing and paying them back their initial capital? And if so, does the equity split change at that point? And he mentioned that the refinance does not change their ownership share. Does that mean that, for example, if I invest 100 grand, I'm making that 8% pref each year, so 8 grand. And then after two years, you return 50% of my equity. So now I only have 50 grand in the deal. I continue to make that 8% on the initial $100,000, right? Since you've received half of the 100, technically, according to our legal documents, you'd be making the 8% pref on the 50,000, so the balance. However, for all of our deals to date, we've continued to pay on the original 100 in your example. So we clearly have it written in the contract and documents that as your capital account decreases, then your preferred return is paid off of that amount. But because we've been doing a pretty good job on the execution of these deals, we've been able to pay off of the original amount and just kept on trucking. I guess the point of that is I want to make a distinction between things that are return on capital and things that are return of capital because return of capital reduces that capital account. So that refinance would be a return of capital, whereas the preferred return is return on capital and is not every year when you're making that 8%, your capital account isn't going down, it's staying the same. And that all depends on how the legal documents are structured. So at this point, we're getting into the nitty gritty aspects, which can vary from syndicator to syndicator. So you'll just want to talk to your attorney if you're a GP or you'll want to just read through it as an LP and see how that works. Okay. Steven's last question was in regard to the length of the investment. So he asked, what's your experience with how fast investors are generally looking to get their money back? Three to five years, 10 years? Get their money back. So I'm interpreting that as how long do investors want to tie up their, mm-hmm. their cash in a deal? And there's no magic number there. In all of our deals, except for one, have been a five-year projected hold. One's been a seven, but that's where we land, or at least to date, that might change in the future. I would say that any investor who's not looking to invest in a project that's a five-year or longer projection, they're likely not an apartment syndication investor. Mm -hmm. So I'd say the minimum's five years, and that's where we're at. And then I've interviewed people on the show who have 10-year projections, 15-year projections, or seven-year. It just varies. Okay. So those are the answers to your question, Stephen. As Jim mentioned in the beginning, it varies from syndicator to syndicator. and Most of these things are completely negotiable. We do have the syndication school series where we actually just released a couple of weeks ago a series on how to structure LP and GP compensation. So we gave a lot more examples of different types of profit splits, preferred returns, what to think about when you're setting up these structures with your limited partners. So that's going to be series number 10, and you can check those out at syndicationschool.com. And then for a little bit more information on raising capital from passive investors, we've also got an eight-part series, series number nine, and that's also at syndicationschool.com. So moving on to some updates, I got one thing that I wanted to mention, that I didn't have a chance to mention last week, and that has to do with 
off-market deals. So one of the ways to obviously find off-market deals are through broker relationships, which as I've talked about, and as Joe's talked about, takes time to build. You're not going to call a broker on a phone one day and he's going to send you an off-market deal the next day. So we gave some tips on how to win over a broker, which included paying them a consulting fee and included constant follow-up. One of those things involved getting a list of all the recent sales, visiting them in person. And that's why I talked about how I did that. And so I essentially followed all those four ways to a T. And sure enough, again, I did this with about six brokers over the past three, four months. And one of them called me a couple of weeks ago out of the blue. It's totally unexpected and had an off-market deal that they had. They were going to list eventually, but they wanted to see if I was interested in it first. It was in Jacksonville, which isn't our market. So, and I mentioned that we're investing in Jacksonville right now. If you have any deals like this in Tampa, definitely feel free to reach out. And we also kind of talked about maybe playing some golf later this year. But I guess the reason I want to bring that up is just kind of shows that those four strategies work because I wasn't expecting to have any broker come remotely close to sending me an off-market deal until I'd actually done a deal with that person. But sure enough, there are ways to kind of expedite that process in those four ways, which are consulting fee, constantly following up, going to their recent sales comps, and letting them know how that relates to your investment strategy. And the fourth one was telling them how you're funding your deals, debt and equity. I just want to just kind of mention that. So if anyone's out there just starting out, wants to increase their chance of receiving an off-market deal from a broker, if you implement those four steps for all the brokers you talk to, hopefully within a couple of months, one of them will potentially send you an off-market deal. Why did you pass on it? Just because it wasn't in our market. We're focusing exclusively on Tampa right now, but we do have a plan to expand out to places like Jacksonville, Tallahassee, Orlando in June if we can't find a deal in Tampa. Why wait till June when you have an off-market deal right now? Just because we have all of our pieces in place in Tampa and really none anywhere else. So before we start looking at deals in either our market, we want to make sure that we have a proper management company in place first. That's really the only reason why. You could probably find a property management company within two, three weeks. And I imagine it's going to take you at least that period of time to qualify the deal and put it under contract. Yeah. Maybe I'll hit them back up and get the information and see if it'll make sense. Yeah. A bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. Yeah. You're in Florida. How far away is Jacksonville from Tampa? I'm not sure. Like maybe four or five hours. Oh, all right. So it's like from Fort Worth to Lubbock, Texas. I think it's in, yeah. it's in Northern Florida. Like 300 miles or so. Yeah, this is just our thought process, and I'm not saying it's right yeah. at all, but we really wanted to do a deal that was within driving distance of us for our first deal. That way, we could consistently go to the property without it being a massive headache while we're actually underwriting the deals. I really like to visit the properties first, and it had been very difficult to continuously drive four or five hours every weekend to a place, but now that you're mentioning it, it is just one deal, and it was off market, so he called me like two weeks ago. And you know, typically these things take a while to move. So I'll send them an email today and kind of see where it goes. Yeah. Four hour drive, not ideal, but doable. And you're still within striking distance. And if it's a four hour drive, then it's going to be about a 30 minute flight. So you could always do that too. Okay. Yeah. I think we're probably all interested in that. I have no idea about the deal, but if Jacksonville works for you as a market, in my opinion, you got an off market deal. <laughs> That's the holy grail. Go jump on Yeah. It. Okay. Any other updates? No, that's one thing I wanted to mention. Okay. 
Are you glad you mentioned it now that I've mentioned <laughs> Are you well, like, oh. I am glad because in my mind, I was just completely opposed to investing outside of Tampa, but you made really good points. Yeah, you've been preparing for this. So we just got to update the plan slightly, if assuming that the market and the deal qualifies and yeah. you can make it happen. It's not like it's in Seattle, Washington or, or something like that. Okay. One thing I want to mention is first props to Grant. He's a social media guy and also helps with events and some other things. We had 84 people at the Cincinnati meetup earlier this week. And I do a monthly meetup, 84 people. And it's largely because of Grant. I've been doing this meetup for about three years, every month. And it had about 20 to 30 people for the first mm, two years and then it has grown tremendously and this month it was the most we ever had 84 people and i'm bringing that up because i was looking this morning on my desktop and i was organizing my folders from the last like seven eight years i've just like archiving stuff so i can be more organized and i don't have to search through things that i don't ever look at now and just archive them and one document I saw from September 23rd, 2012, and it was titled, Why I Failed Tonight. Why I Failed Tonight. And I immediately knew what I wrote about. And I thought, how relevant is this? And how cool is it that this is where I came from? And this is where I'm at now, the 84 people at the meetup every month now, at least. And what happened on September the 23rd, 2012 is... This was my second, maybe my first, it might've been my first class that I taught on how to buy single family homes. I was living in New York City. So New York City, I had my advertising job and I had bought three or four single family homes by this time. And I had told some friends about what I was doing and they're like, oh, you're buying these single family homes, these three or four in Texas and you have this advertising job. How are you doing it? So I taught a class and so I set up this class and it was upstairs of some church on the Upper West Side in Manhattan. And I probably got the church space for like 20 bucks or 25 bucks. And to attend the class, uh, I was probably eight, nine dollars to attend the class. And it was upstairs and I was so nervous, so, so nervous because I had three or four people attending. So I actually know it wasn't my first one because my first one, I think I had one person attend. So this was probably my second or third time. And we grew out of the first space apparently into this space where it had a table that sat six people. So I arrived early at the church, went upstairs and they use it as a daycare, but I was going to teach this class on how to buy single family homes in a market that makes cash flow. So in my case, Dallas, Fort Worth. Well, had four or five people come in the door and they sat down and I'm just sweating bullets. I'm so nervous. I am terrified of public speaking and I am like, get up. I'm like pacing in front of them. And then I sit down and I try to talk and nothing comes out. It's just nerve wracking. And the first slides up, and I'm not saying anything. <laughs> then I start to say something, voice starts cracking. And some of these people are coworkers of mine. So I'm worried about them judging me and this snowballing. It's not like they're strangers and me looking like an idiot. And I'm like, 
crashing quickly. So I get up, I get a drink of water. It's silence. It's just me getting up, getting a drink of water. I sit back down and I ask some questions, like break the ice, warm me up. And it's so awkward because I've already said hi to them. I know them, but now I'm sitting down, I'm asking them questions. And eventually once they answer some questions, I get into the presentation and I power through it. And then they leave and I'm walking home just pissed off, embarrassed, mortified actually. So I get home and I do an assessment and I write down and I title the document why I failed tonight. And I wrote, I didn't talk to anyone this entire day. And when I started tonight, it showed must've been a Saturday or something. I have to go in with an aggressive attitude during presentations. I can't go in being cold. I need to bring energy, passion. I didn't have it today. I also need to do icebreakers to learn more about the class and what they want to learn from it. And then in this document, I have another entry, which is a month later, so October 10th, 2012. And this is a presentation I did for the advertising agency I was working at. And I did better. And I have in here, I told myself I was prepared and a calmness came over me. I knew I would do well and perform, use my energy for the good. And then I have an entry two years later. So this is June 20th, 2014. And I have, I now know to simply serve the audience, go in with a mentality of helping them, all else fades to black when that is the focus. And that is the approach I take today. And it's so refreshing. It's so much easier whenever the focus is simply on serving people who are there. And a recommendation I have is search Tony Robbins' presentation tips on YouTube. His video, which is from the 80s, he's in a tank top and he's got a funny hairdo and it's some weird colors because it was filmed on who knows what in the 80s. That presentation helped me learn how to be an effective public speaker. And it put my mind in the right place. And I'm mentioning all this because now today, six years later, we got a packed house of 84 people. And by the way, of those 84, two of them came from Tennessee, which was effectively the same distance from Tampa to Jacksonville, Theo, or if you're Texas people from Lubbock, Texas to Fort Worth. That's how far they came for this two-hour meetup. One person came from Cleveland. I don't know the distance to Cincinnati from Cleveland, but it's similar to what I just mentioned. Another couple came from Dayton. A couple more came from Indianapolis, which is probably a couple hours away, I believe, from Cincinnati. And then the rest came from Cincinnati. So we're attracting people from all over and it's growing. And it's from the consistency that we're doing and then also from this approach. So I just wanted to mention it because not all for me is sunshine and rainbows and it's an evolution and it's just sticking to it and just doing things consistently over a long period of time. So those are some things that I thought would be interesting to just point out. I appreciate you sharing that story. I'm sure everyone listening can relate in some form to your story about your presentation attempt when you're doing the single family house. When we first started doing these, I'd be like blacked out the entire time. It ended like, I don't know what happened. I don't know what I said. I hope it didn't sound stupid because I was so nervous, but obviously For me, it just takes time. I have to do something over and over and over again and just fail in a sense until I get comfortable doing it. Something else that really helped me too was taking that Dale Carnegie class a few years ago, if you remember that. And kind of the biggest thing for me was they made you go up in front of, there's only like 10, 15 people there, but they had this exercise where you are acting out the goofiest things ever. 
you completely embarrass yourself. And that whole experience going from knowing it was happening the week before, being so nervous that entire week, that day practicing the techniques and then going into the actual class, doing it and the energy level was everyone was super anxious and didn't want to be judged. And at the end, everyone was laughing. Everyone was having a great time. It was the most fascinating experience I've ever gone through. Ever since then, I've really had no anxiety doing any type of public speaking. I consider this public speaking, even though not necessarily in front of people. So I just wanted to just kind of mention that too. And I guarantee you, after you did the Dale Carnegie exercise where you had to do silly stuff, the energy was just through the roof after everyone was going, you probably wanted to go again. You rather volunteer at the end to go again. I'm like, I want to do this one. <laughs> I want to do that one. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. It's like when you ride a roller coaster, although I don't like roller coasters. <laughs> when you ride a roller coaster, for most people, you do it once, you get over the initial fear and you keep going. And how applicable is that in every aspect of business and real estate investing? There's initial fear, you get through it, you learn from it. It's important to, in my case, I documented why it happened, at least why I thought it happened. And then I just work on continually improving over time while still doing that stuff so that I'm forcing myself to be in that situation to figure things out. That's great presentation advice. And if you want to come to our meetup, bestevercincy.com, we do it the last Tuesday of every month. We've had people from Detroit, Michigan, all over, and I already mentioned the other cities who come. It's a whopping $2.50 to attend. I do that so that people who RSVP come and we don't get a bunch of phantom RSVPs and we have pizza there. So basically you're going to get some pizza for your $2 and 50 cents or whatever it is. So best ever would love to have out of towners as well as obviously all the Cincinnati people. All right. So any other updates you wanted to mention? Nope, that's it. Okay, great. So trivia question. We do these on every fall on Friday. And if you submit your answer via email to info at Joe Fairless, or if you submit a comment under the YouTube video with your answer, First person that gets the answer correct will get a free signed copy of the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever, Volume 1. So last week's trivia question was what city, and it had to have a population greater than 200,000, has the largest percentage of renter population? And the answer was Newark, New Jersey at a whopping 74%. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's part of the MSA of New York City, I imagine. So this week's question is going to be... For the record, I did say New York City, didn't I? Yep, you did. And I believe New York City was the top five, I told you. Well, I think Newark, New Jersey is part of the MSA for New York City. Okay. So I'm not 100% sure. I'm pretty sure that is. So if we're talking MSAs, then I need a pat on the back, please. Good work, Joe. (laughs) Let's see if we get this one. So there's a company out there who does annual rent reviews. So they track the rents for the previous three years and see which city with the greatest increase and where the cities with the greatest reduction in rent. So this week's question is going to be what U.S. city had the largest percent increase in median rents from 2014 to 2017? I'm going to go Vegas. I actually didn't read through this list, but is Vegas on the list? <laughs> did it, even, it didn't even make the list. <laughs> Vegas did not make the list. Oh, dang it. <laughs> Vegas did not make the list, although there uh, is... How long is the list? It's just top 10. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, clearly I was way off. That's I was, my guess. I was very surprised by the answer to this one. I was thinking Vegas or like Boise, Idaho or something, but all right, fine. Uh, my, but I'm sticking with Vegas and clear that's off. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing the answer next week.
A few more things. So best ever conference is at the end of February. So we're about three weeks out now. That's in Denver, Colorado. Tickets are still available. So go to besteverconference.com to pick up your ticket now because ticket prices will continue to go up each week. Every following Friday, we mention what to expect at the conference. And one of the panels is going to focus on the ins and outs of professional underwriting and due diligence. So there'll be a panel of active apartment syndicators, apartment investors, and they will discuss from their perspective, the best practices when underwriting the deal. So once you find the deal and financially evaluating it, and then how to kind of continue to evaluate that deal after placing it under contract during the due diligence period. So very important stuff for apartments because Obviously, if you don't know how to underwrite and don't know how to do due diligence, you're either not going to find a deal that makes sense or you're going to buy a deal that you shouldn't buy. So that's going to be a very powerful panel. And on the opposite end of that spectrum, Friday night, we're having a party. So everyone who ever who's <laughs> attending the conference, we got a private party that we're going to be doing and that's going to be a lot of fun. So learn underwriting and then let's go party. Party it up. I like it. And then lastly, before we wrap up, Make sure you guys buy the best ever apartment syndication book on guys Amazon. And girls, Theo. Guys and girls. Last week you said guys, and I didn't say girls too, but I was thinking it. <laughs> I'll get it eventually. I need to put a note back in my outline. Real I'm, quick, by the way, last week, did you end up saying imagine this? You said you're going to slip it into the episode. Oh, yeah, you're right. I didn't. Oh, okay. Or imagine this. <laughs> I wake up, I go on bigger pockets to post for the day, and every day I get at least one person who sent me a message about the book and either that they bought it and they're going to read it or that they have read it and how much value it added. I just really appreciate that. I'm really glad that the book is adding so much value to people's businesses. So as you guys know, we read the review of the week on the uh, guys and girls. We read the review of the week on <laughs> the podcast. This week's review comes from Steve as well. So that's why I was on the guys in my mind. Uh-huh. And he said, I purchased multiple books on apartment syndication. If you're on the fence about which one to buy, I can guarantee this one is the best. The reason why I was hesitant to buy it initially was because there is not an option to listen to it on Audible. You need to take the time and read this. Joe goes into plenty of detail on where to find private investors, what types of deals to buy, what to look for in cities if you're investing out of state, and how to answer common questions that people are going to ask you that will probably stump you. This book is a 10 out of five stars. Thank you for that. And by the way, Stephen and all of best ever listeners who like the audio stuff, which I imagine you do since you're listening to a podcast right now, we are in the final stages of having the audio version of the best ever apartment syndication book recorded. So we are going to have an audio version of the book and it's going to be out within... 40 days from today so you can just go on amazon and check it out within 40 days from when this episode airs at the latest cool all right well is that it theo we good all right well best ever listeners thanks so much for hanging out with us hopefully we added value to your day and your business and your real estate ventures and we'll talk to you tomorrow best ever listeners best ever conference that's where you want to be february 22nd and 23rd in denver colorado Put in the code TAKE5, T-A-K-E, and the number 5 to get an extra 5% off.
Ticket prices go up weekly, so buy it today, besteverconference.com. You can read all about the conference at the website, all about the speakers. You can read about them and what you will experience when you're there, besteverconference.com. When it's Friday at 4.30 p.m., it's time for Entrepreneur Drinks Podcast, which is co-produced by Joint Ops Properties and Discount Property Investors. Join their end-of-the-work-week session as they tackle problems facing entrepreneurs. Listen and subscribe at entrepreneurdrinks.com. That's entrepreneurdrinks.com.